Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Let's settle in. Cell phones off. Bibles open. Hearts tuned into God. And see what the Lord may want to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord, we love the way Paul put it. When he said that we present our bodies to you as living sacrifices. And so here we are. Our bodies are here. We have gotten out of bed. We've come in our vehicles. We've parked. We've entered this building. We're sitting here, Lord, because we want to hear a word from you. We present our bodies, our minds, our very spirit to you, Lord. We pray that you would speak and that you would reveal to us deeper what our relationship to you is like. We know that we're your children. We know that we're the sheep of your pasture. We know that we're servants of the Most High God, but here we understand, today we understand, in this passage we understand that we are your friends. Help us to understand how great that is and what that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1855, a man by the name of Joseph Scriven wrote a poem for his mother who was living in Ireland. He is had been from Ireland. He was now living in Canada. He wrote a poem to his mom to encourage his mom. It wasn't a song, but it became a song. It was simply a poem. You know it. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Now, you've sung that, as have I, but knowing the story behind it will help, I think, and whenever you sing it again, to understand the real depth of meaning behind it. You see, Joseph Scriven was himself born in Ireland and fell in love. When he was 25 years old, he met a young lady and was engaged to her. And as the relationship developed and they were planning their wedding, they were so excited. But the day before the wedding, a tragedy happened and that girl died in a drowning accident. One day before the wedding. He was brokenhearted. And Joseph Scriven got on a boat, left Ireland, went to Canada to heal from that experience and eventually met another young lady by the name of Eliza Roche. He fell in love with Eliza. They got engaged. And seemingly, as providence would have it, she came down with an illness and she died also before the wedding. His heart was devastated. He never did marry his entire life. He stayed single. He devoted his life to preaching the gospel and to showing compassion to those whose hearts were broken and who needed a friend. At the very same time or around the same time that his fiancée number two, Elijah Roche, died, word came to him that his mother in Ireland was sick and on her deathbed. He couldn't afford to get on a boat and go back to Ireland, so he wrote the poem, the song. And that second verse is so poignant, especially coming from his own lips. 
Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. You know, it's one thing if somebody who never suffered wrote that song, but coming from his own life makes those words even more powerful. What a friend we have in Jesus. What is a friend? If you were to look up the word in a Webster's Dictionary, as I did this week, you would discover that the definitions in the dictionary are very inadequate. Definition number one, a friend is someone attached to someone else by esteem or affection. Okay. Definition number two, someone who is not hostile. In other words, the opposite of a friend is an enemy. I think we can do a lot better than that. I've always loved the definition that came in a British newspaper years ago. This newspaper gave a cash prize for anyone who could write in with the best definition of a friend. Thousands of entries were submitted. Typical ones, like a friend is one who multiplies joy and divides grief. Or a friend is someone who understands our silence. Or a friend is a volume of sympathy wrapped in a cloth. Or a friend is a watch that ever beats and never runs out. But the definition that won the prize for this English publication was this. A friend is someone who comes in when the rest of the world goes out. What a friend we have in Jesus. Proverbs 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Boy, you really know who your friends are when you're in adversity, right? They either come, they show up, they rise to the surface, or, hey, where, where's so-and-so? I thought they were my friend. Would you agree with this statement that we have many acquaintances, but few friends? I think that's true. You might know a lot of people as acquaintances, but to be given the designation of a friend, but you've got to be a special person, because you're not going to just pour out your heart with anybody, right? It has to be a special person. Very few friends. What do you want in a friend? What's a good friend like? A survey was given to 40,000 Americans, and they discovered the qualities most Americans want in friends. Listen to this lineup. Number one, the ability to keep a confidence. In other words, not a gossip. Somebody who will zip the lip when needed. Number two, someone who's loyal. And number three, Someone who's warm and affectionate. That's interesting. That's not number one. That was number three. Ability to keep a confidence, loyalty, and then warmth and affection. This morning in John chapter 15, we look at a very special friendship. It's the friendship that Jesus has with his own. Now keep in mind the context. There's 11 disciples Jesus is walking with. Remember the story? Chapter 14, Jesus said, Arise, let us go from here. They're in the upper room. They've had the Last Supper. He gets up from the supper. They walk out of the room. They're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And somewhere along the road, Jesus speaks to them, chapter 15 and 16, and will pray in chapter 17 in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of his 
friends, so-called, Judas Iscariot is no longer with them. At this very moment, he's perpetrating the betrayal of Jesus Christ. So these remaining 11, these are the good branches, as opposed to the dead branch that bore no, no fruit, really, and that's Judas. These are the abiding branches. These are the fruitful branches. And to them, Jesus gives a special designation. Let's read it in its context, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a friend does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things I heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you that you love one another. So in looking at these verses, let's consider the kind of friendship that Jesus has with us and we can have with him. And those are the basic two things we want to look at. We want to look at it, how good of a friend Jesus is to us. And then finally, what kind of a friend are we to him? So there's a few things I want you to note based on this text. Number one, Jesus picks his friends. That seems legitimate, right? He has that prerogative. We would imagine he would be able to choose whoever he wants as his friends. Look at verse 16 more carefully. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Stop right there. Now, this is different than human friendship. Because in human friendship, there is a commonality and a mutuality about our friendships. We choose each other. Actually, if you ever encounter someone, there's three possibilities, three things that could happen, and only one would result in friendship. Option number one, you meet a person, you're hanging around, you talk to the person, and you don't like that person. And that person doesn't care much for you. Are you going to be friends with that person? No, you might be polite and thank you very much and dismiss it, but you'll never be friends. Option number two, you meet someone, you like them, they don't like you. You're probably not going to be friends. Option number three, you meet someone, you're fond of them, they're fond of you. You both invest in that and uh, friendship will develop over time and be nurtured. What's interesting here is that it seems to be, at least at first, unilateral. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now, that to me is so significant that I want just a few minutes to unpack the meaning of that for us. For Jesus to say, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, reveals some things. First of all, it speaks to us about his position. His position. That Jesus is so important and so high in rank that he can have this prerogative of choice. I'll give you an example. If you uh, ever met... um, a very famous person, a great person, a very wealthy person, you know that people like that tend to be very careful about who they allow into their circle of friends, right? 
They just don't allow anyone because there's a lot of people with ulterior motives that would want to take advantage of that relationship. So they're very slow to allow friends around them. In fact, I would even say that people who are that great have the prerogative. You'll only be their friends if they invite you in to their circle. I was, uh, I was watching a show some time back. I think it was called Cribs or, or, uh, Famous people's cribs, you know, it's about their home where they live. It showed the home of Mariah Carey. It was Mariah's crib, her home. It was a beautiful home. And she went through every room, every level of every room, every building of that house. It was a massive mansion. And this is what we do here, and my friends do this here. Then she showed one lower room. It was beautiful, but it was a lower room. She goes... This is reserved for people who aren't as close of friends. They get to be in this room, but no other room. So she was obviously in control of the relationships that she allows in that house, in her life. Here is Jesus, who allows us to be friends, makes a choice by virtue of his position. It says in 1 John chapter 4, we love him because he first loved us. That's why we're friends. He first loved us. He, by his position, invited us closer. It tells us something else. Number two, it tells us not just about his position, but his election, his election. He chose us. Verse 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. Now go over to verse 19. Look at that one. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now we're speaking about election, predestination. And I personally have no problem with the doctrine of election or predestination that God in advance chooses those to be saved. And a lot of people struggle with that. To me, it's not a struggle. Ephesians 1 tells us that you are chosen, we are chosen predestined in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's his election of us. So God chose people to be saved. Now you might, in hearing that, say, I believe that, Skip, but I have a problem whenever you call people forward at an altar call. I've had people tell me that. They don't like altar calls. So why do you ask people to come forward and choose Christ? Here's why. Because both are true. He chooses us, and we cooperate with His choice by choosing Him. He involves Himself in our human volition. You know what it's like? It's like a rope. There's a drowning man in a body of water in a lake. He's drowning. A rope gets thrown to him. Will the rope save him? No, the rope by itself won't save him. He has to do what? Grab a hold of the rope. But even that's not enough. If there's the presence of a rope and the man grabs a hold of the rope, will that save him? No. There has to be somebody on the shore pulling him, pulling that rope to safety. So put those together. God, by predestination, throws the rope. By election, draws the rope. We, by our own volition, grab a hold of the rope. Both are true. He has chosen us. This is divine election. 
Now, it could be that in hearing that, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard something like that, you might even be an unbeliever, and you hear that God chooses people to be saved, and you're thinking, boy, that's not fair, because what if he didn't choose me to be saved? Well, I can prove to you that he did. At the end of this service, you come and give your life to Christ, and I'll show you that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth. Well, I don't know if I want to do that. I'm not willing. I'm not ready. Okay, well, maybe you weren't chosen. Well, that's not fair. Well, then come and choose Christ. You'll discover that the choice has been made. It's like the old analogy of the man seeing a sign on the door that says, whosoever will, let him come. He opens the door. The door closes behind him. The sign on the back of the door says, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the earth. So this tells us of his position. It tells us of his election. There's something else this Jesus picking of his friends shows us. It shows us his affection, his love. I want you to think about this. God knew all about you before he chose you. And he still chose you. Did you get that? He knew all about your weaknesses. He knew all about your mistakes. He knew all about your habits. He knows all the dumb things we do and think. And he chose you anyway. Chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. That's affection. That's love. Charles Spurgeon used to say, it's a good thing that God picked me before I was born. He never would have picked me after I was born. (laughs) Of course, he didn't really believe that. That was uh, his way of saying the love of God is so amazing that knowing all that I am and all of my mistakes, he would pick me anyway. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus picked his 12 disciples... Did he understand what they were going to do to him? Do you think he understood all that was going to happen? You bet he did. Did he know that Peter was going to deny him? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, did Jesus know that Thomas was going to doubt him? Yep. And, And did he know that James and John would say, Lord, let me just kill these Samaritans, call down fire from heaven and smoke them? Did he know that violence was in them? Yep. Picked him anyway. It speaks of his affection. One of my favorite stories is a story of a huge block of marble that was cut out of a quarry in Carrara, Italy, where all of the ancient statues, the marble for the statues was hewn and typically brought to the great artists for them to make something. And this uh, stone was cut out. It was a massive block of marble, and it was taken to Florence, Italy, where the masters lived. And Artist after artist viewed that block of marble that sat in a churchyard week after week. And all of them rejected that block of marble. For example, Donatello, the great sculptor, looked at it and said, I don't want it because there was a crack in it. There was a flaw that ran through the marble. And one after another rejected the flawed marble until one artist came by and he smiled and he got really excited and he said, there's an angel trapped inside And I must set it free. That man was Michelangelo. For two years he worked on that flawed block of marble and brought forth after two years on January 25th, 1504, what is called his greatest work ever, the statue of David, which still adorns the courtyards of Florence, Italy. That's affection. That's how God looks at us. God looks at your life, sees the flaw, says, yeah, I know, but there's... There's something trapped in there. I'm going to release it. I'm going to work on that person. I'm going to make them useful. 
So here's Jesus picking his friends. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Speaks of his position, speaks of his election, speaks of his affection. Finally, fourth thing it does, it speaks to us of his intention. His intention. Now listen carefully. God has an intention, a purpose for your life now, a job for you to do. I want you to look at the second important word in that sentence, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and what? Appointed. Appointed. It's a very, very important word. It's the Greek word tithemi. It means to select, appoint, ordain for a very special purpose. So the first part, I've chosen you, chosen you out of the world, that's salvation. The second word, ordain, that's service. First salvation, and then comes service. I chose you, I ordained you. But keep going, look what it says. You didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should... What's the next word? I want to hear it from everybody. Go! Stop there. This is so, I love this. So good. I've chosen you and I've especially ordained you that you should go. Listen, God never selects any Christian to stop. I picked you to stop right there. Go no further. There's motion implied here. He didn't want us to just sit around, look at each other, sing a few songs, just watch life go on. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So so here's the pattern. And this is so important. I just don't want anybody to miss it. This is what he does. Jesus picks friends, calls them out of the world, saves them, and then sends them right back in the world. Because now they have the wherewithal to do something about the world they were chosen out of. I've chosen you. I've ordained you that you should go and bear forth or bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. What does he mean here by fruit? You say, Skip, you've been through this already. Move on. You talked about fruit last week. I did. I talked about fruit, especially as the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, the characteristic of Christ. Here, the context is a little different. Because he's speaking of being chosen and going out into the world, I think that the fruit he is especially in particular referring to aren't, the graces of Christian character, but the converts from the unbelieving world. It's people that you influence and they come to Christ. There's a spiritual harvest. The fruit is gathered in. Stay right here. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to turn to John chapter 4. We've been through this before, but I don't know. It was like 40 years ago. This is Jesus in Samaria, right? He's in Samaria. A lot of unbelievers come to faith in him there. Chapter 4 of John's Gospel, I'm reading out of verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps and he who receives wages gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. 
Every time you have the opportunity to lead somebody to Christ, even if you don't even make it that far, if you just say a word that will influence them later to do so, or you show an act of love in the name of Christ that will eventually add to their conversion, that is eternal fruit. And I tell you, that's the way to live. There's, there's purpose in the Christian life. I tell you, there's one way I don't want to live. I don't want to live my life standing around and watching the world go on, just sort of meaninglessly living my life, watching things happen without influencing somebody else. I'd much rather live with the intention of I'm saved and I'm ordained to bear forth fruit and bring people to know Christ because that's eternal fruit. And by the way, did you know that every, every person that you influence, every fruit follows you into eternity? That your fruit would remain, Jesus said. Remain. One of the passages we often share at funerals for those believers who live this kind of a life, Revelation 14 says, And blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, for they will rest from their labors and their works will follow them. Your fruit will follow you into eternity. So Jesus picks his friends. Second great truth we see here is that Jesus helps his friends. That's good, isn't it? If he picks you as his friend, you want him to help you. You say, well, what kind of help will he give? Well, the, the first and most important thing is he saves you. He'll sacrifice his life for you. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. We always look to the cross, do we not, as the prime greatest quintessential example of love. Jesus did that. He loves me that much. By the way, the principle in verse 13 is a universal principle. Everybody knows it to be true. Every culture knows it to be true. The greatest example of love, of friendship, is when a friend would give his life and sacrifice his life for another. That's the best example, highest example of love. But here Jesus is speaking of his own death. Okay, now fast forward to when John writes 1 John. And in that book, John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We really know that he came to help us. We really know that he loves us because he was willing to lay his life down for us. You understand the principle? Jesus doesn't just choose you to be his friends. He came to this earth and paid the bill for you to become his friends by washing away your sin, by dying on the cross. Now, somebody will listen to that and go, yeah, 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 this is the one problem I have with Christianity is this whole death on the cross thing. You know, I like to think of Jesus as just a good person, a good fella, a good example, a good teacher. And why can't we just say that Jesus came to this earth to say some nice words, uh, do a few miraculous tricks to stun everyone, and then he just left? Isn't that good enough? Do we have to make a big deal about him dying on a cross? Yes, we do. And here's why. Because all of Jesus' friends are sinners. And all sinners need to be forgiven. And forgiveness comes by shed blood. The Old Testament says it. Only by the shedding of blood is there remission of sins. Or without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's number one. He came to sacrifice for us, to pay the penalty. 
to be our atonement. Look at verse 15. Here's something else he does and helps us. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus speaks to us. Jesus reveals to us. Jesus lets us in, his friends, on the plan of God. All things that I've learned from my father, I told you. So I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Now, just think about this for a moment. Um, when you read through the uh, epistles like Romans, etc., you find that a lot of the gospel writers love to call themselves servants. It's one of Paul's favorite terms for himself. So in Romans and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Philippians and in Titus, those five books, all five books, Paul calls himself a bond slave of Jesus. Ever heard that term, bond servant of Jesus? He loved to call himself a bond servant, a slave of Jesus. He wasn't the only one. James in his book calls himself a slave. Peter in 2 Peter calls himself a bondservant. Jude calls himself a bondservant. All of these authors love to call themselves servants. Why? Because they knew they had a great boss. Because as the old saying goes, to be his slave is to be a king. They loved being called a servant. So then, why does Jesus here make a differentiation between servants and friends. I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I'm going to call you friends. Well, then he explains it. For everything I've heard from my father, I've told you. Did you know in ancient times, slaves worked for their master without any explanation at all? A master never told the servant why he had to do work, just that he had to do work. Just do the work. And servants would do the work, slaves would do the work, They do the work to get paid, just to grind it out, just to get the job done. They didn't really particularly love their master necessarily. They could, but typically not. So often you'd have a slave who had a bad attitude anyway toward the master, just cranking it out, just doing the work, just wanting to get paid. The master would never go to a slave and say, let me let you in on my secrets, my plans, my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations, my agenda. That was something reserved for only friends who were close confidants, not slaves. Servants didn't understand. Friends did. Did you know that 2,000 years ago when this was written, the Roman emperor had a group of people around him in his court that were known as friends of the king. And the friends of the king were more than political advisors. They were actually close Associates. They had access to the king at any time. They could even go into his bedchamber and talk about the deepest issues of life. And the king typically would run everything by his friends of the king before he would tell anybody else. I don't call you servants. I call you friends. If I would have been a disciple, I would have gone, yeah, I would know what that meant. What an honor. They just got promoted. They just got elevated. And then he tells them why once again. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In other words, we, his friends, we don't just blindly follow his orders. We know why we follow his orders. He's revealed to us the whole scope of life from the beginning of creation to the end of the consummation. We're in on the deal. We're in on the details. 
Uh, real quickly, if you don't mind, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. There's a lot of verses of scriptures that I could use. I just want to poke at a couple of them to, to let you see the meaning of this and to reinforce it. Matthew chapter 13. This is Jesus giving parables. Look at this, verse 10. And his disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? What's up with all these stories? Uh, why are you doing that? Look at what he says. He answered them and said, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Isn't that interesting? They're going to hear a story and go, I don't get it. That's kind of a funny little story. He was cute, but I don't get it. I don't understand. But the friends, the close associates, they'll understand the meaning that lies behind the clever little story in a deeper fashion. Something else. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. So just go. You're going back to John. Go two blocks to the right on the way back to John. Luke, chapter 10. In verse 22 of Luke 10, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then He turned to His disciples privately and said, Blessed are your eyes which see the things you see, For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Jesus told them everything. Jesus told them how to get to heaven. Jesus told them a little bit about what heaven would be like. Jesus told them how to have joy, how to have peace. Jesus told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even told them about what will happen at the end of the world and how it's all going to come down sequentially in Matthew chapter 24. So he passed that on to them. They in turn wrote it down and passed it on to us. So we have what Paul called the whole counsel of God. We have what Paul called the mystery of the knowledge of God. Of his will. We have all of the sacred secrets given to us in the Bible. Now, somebody's going to say, okay, well, if it's in the Bible, then anybody can just buy a Bible and they'll have all the sacred secrets. Anybody, believer or non believer, right? Wrong. You know what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness unto him. He can't know them. They're spiritually discerned. I know people who own Bibles, and they don't have a clue what's written in it. They have no knowledge of spiritual truth. They own the Bible. They own the book. They may have even tried to read it. They don't get it. It's something the Holy Spirit of God must unlock. And he does that to his friends. This is what I want you to to walk away with on this point. We know what nobody else knows. You have the secret of the universe. You know, I I honestly don't think we really appreciate that. I really think we take it for granted how much we know. It means that the greatest philosopher, the smartest scientist, all on their quest for the truth, they're like babies in the crib compared to a simple, 
man or woman with a Bible and the Holy Spirit of God bringing the revelation of knowledge to that heart. Everything the Father has told me, I've passed it on. So Jesus picks his friends. He helps his friends. Third, and we close on this. We better do it quickly. He anticipates his friends. He expects his friends to do something. One verse. Look at verse 14. You are my friends. Notice there's not a period there. He didn't say, you know what? I've picked a lot of friends and you are my friends. Notice how it goes on after the comma. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Okay, so we've been talking about how great a friend Jesus is. Now I have a question for you. How good of a friend to Jesus are you? Well, how can I be a good friend? If you do whatever I command you. Notice something about that. Jesus' friends actively obey him. The word do is a positive word. He didn't say, you're my friends if you don't do this and you don't do that. And for a lot of people, their Christianity is all about negatives, what they don't do. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do. (laughs) Whoopee, what do you do? That's positive. So Jesus' friends will actively obey. Not only that, Jesus' friends will repeatedly obey. You see the word do? It's a little word. It's in the present subjunctive. It means continually, habitually, as a lifestyle do. Not, you are my disciples if you do something once and then quit it forever. You are my disciples if you do what I tell you to do on Sundays, but on Monday and the rest of the week do whatever you want. You are my disciples if you do what I tell you to do when everybody's looking, but when nobody's looking, do whatever you want. It's a continual, habitual lifestyle of obedience. And finally, look at the word whatever. This tells me that Jesus' friends unconditionally obey him. You are my disciples if you do whatever. Not, it's not like if you do whatever. That's sort of the modern term. What, what do you got to do? Whatever. No, it means anything he tells you to do, right? Here's the deal. You and I can never pick and choose what area of life we're going to allow Jesus Christ into. We can't say, well, I'm going to obey him in my business life, but I won't obey him in my marriage. I've got something else going on the side. Well, I'm going to obey Jesus in my marriage and in my business, but I'm not going to obey him when I file for my income tax returns. Or I'm going to obey Jesus there, but when it comes to my vacation and my leisure, I'm going to sort of do what I want. No. It's a continual, habitual, and it includes whatever. Whatever. This is what James said, James chapter 4. And here's the choice everybody has to make. James said... Whoever would be a friend of this world is an enemy toward God. A man or a woman must come basically to that choice. Am I going to be the world's friend or am I going to be God's friend? Because down the long haul, you won't be able to do both. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you with that choice in mind knowing that Jesus picks his friends and what an honor that is to be chosen, to be predestined, to be loved because you knew us before you picked us. 
And to have the kind of intentionality in our lives where you would say, not only have I chosen you as my friends, I've chosen you as my ambassadors. I've ordained you, appointed you to go and to bear forth fruit that will last. Thank you for that. What a privilege. Thank you for helping us by paying the bill that it costs to get us to heaven, by revealing your will to us through the Scripture, by telling us everything we need to know about life and godliness. And Lord, thank you that this friendship is a two-way street. It's not just what you have done and what you continue to do, but it's reciprocal. We're your friends if we do whatever you tell us. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Thank you for that access as friends of the King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.